Are you looking for a way to track your sleep that is accurate and affordable? Then check out biohackingring.com and use the coupon code JIMMY at checkout for $50 off. Now you've often heard me discussing my sleep biohacking, quantifying how much deep sleep as well as REM sleep and other stages of sleep that I'm getting. And we now have a very cool and fashionable technology that's out there for tracking this data. Again, it's at biohackingring.com. Use the coupon code Jimmy, J-I-M-M-Y, at checkout, you'll get $50 off of this cutting-edge device. I absolutely love this ring, and I couldn't imagine not using it to look in on my sleep. Biohackingring.com is the website. Coupon code Jimmy for $50 off at checkout, and you need to check it out, and it gives you lots of data on sleep, activity, heart rate variability, heart rate, and more. Biohackingring.com. If you love great olive oil, do I have a deal for you? As one of my listeners, you're entitled to receive for $1, listen to this, for just $1, a $39 bottle of one of the world's finest artisanal olive oils. And what makes this oil really special? It was just fresh pressed at the new harvest, so it's bursting with more harvest fresh flavor than any olive oil you've ever tasted. It's yours for just one buck to help cover shipping as your introduction to the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. And there's no obligation to buy anything now or ever. But what exactly is fresh pressed olive oil? And why is it so much more flavorful than store-bought olive oil? The problem with store-bought olive oils is that they can sit on store shelves for months, even years, growing stale or even rancid. The olive, after all, is a fruit. And olive oil is similar to a fruit juice in that it's much more flavorful when fresh pressed. And that's what's unique about oils from my friends at the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. They rush their oils direct to your door by plane and special delivery truck straight from the latest harvest. This means that you, your family, and lucky guests can enjoy top-of-the-line artisanal olive oils at their peak of harvest fresh flavor and nutritional value. This is great news for us low-carb lovers because pure fresh-pressed olive oil has zero carbs. Zero carbs. It adds whole layers of amazing flavor to your favorite low-carb dishes, your roasted vegetables, healthy salads, grilled meats, delicate fish, toasted nuts. Oh, yeah. I can tell you from personal experience, once you try this fresh-pressed olive oil, you'll never go back to store-bought again. Try it yourself and see. For your 39 bottle for a buck, go to jimmyoliveoil.com. That's jimmyoliveoil.com. One more time jimmyoliveoil.com It's time for Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole featuring veteran health podcaster Jimmy Moore and functional medicine practitioner Dr. Will Cole They're here every Thursday answering your questions about low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diets Now, it's time to drop some keto knowledge on Keto Talk Keto Talk Here's Jimmy and Will Hey, hey guys, we're back here on episode 129 of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole Ketotalk.com is the website. Ketotalkfb.com is where you can connect with your fellow Ketonians at the Ketonian Corner Facebook page. And we are here each and every Thursday answering your questions about low-carb, moderate-protein, high-fat ketogenic diets with a little functional medicine spin thrown in. And why do we do that? Because we have a functional medicine practitioner 
as the co-host. My name's Jimmy Moore, international best-selling author of Keto Clarity and the soon-to-be-released Real Food Keto, realfoodketo.com, by the way, if you want to go check it out. But I am here with a functional medicine practitioner, a good friend, a buddy, and awesome co-host. He is Dr. Will Cole. He's also an international best-selling author of the book Ketotarian. If you haven't picked it up, please go get it. And I was telling people about it on an Instagram live this week because they're like, you can't really do vegan and keto. I'm like, oh yeah, go read Ketotarian. So Will, welcome back to your show again today. Hey, 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 <laughs> I am back. <laughs> Thank you for the kind words. And I love doing this show every week. It's super, a highlight of my week for sure. Yeah, ditto. And and we're going to hate being gone in November, December, but it'll let you and I recharge. So mm-hmm. we'll be rip-roaring, ready to go in the... 2019 that's coming up very soon, but let's jump right into the show. And usually at the top of the show, we try to talk about a little something that's making news that's controversial, and this one caught my attention. Please don't promote obesity. Internet bashes Tess Holiday for latest cover, and here's what our, uh, some are getting wrong about it. So this was on Yahoo Lifestyle, and Tess Holiday. if you haven't heard of her before, you guys, uh, she's a five foot three plus size model, fat positive advocate, and tatted mother of two. And she was on the front cover of Cosmopolitan magazine. I'm looking at it right now, blowing a kiss to the camera. And she's a big girl. And so people thought, okay, well, we're glorifying obesity by having her be the front cover model for Cosmopolitan. And it's unfortunate uh, in this day and age, Will. Uh, that people aren't more accepting of we all are different body types. And while she's not that traditional Christy Brinkley uh, front cover model of a magazine, I think we should celebrate people of all sizes. Um, You know, her health notwithstanding, we don't know anything about that. But just from the physical image of it all, I don't see anything wrong with this. I think it it is recalibrating the conversation. And I think it's it's good. And and it's making a conversation. I think more than, than people actually are really concerned for her health. I don't think people are really concerned for her health and nor is it glorifying, um, obesity. I think it's just, this is a person where she's at, uh, and she has a, a successful career and a lot of people can relate to her. A lot of people can probably relate to how she looks like versus the supermodel. Um, And, you know, I I think that, like you said, we don't know her health. We don't know where she's at. And we should be uh, showing different body sizes on magazines because when it comes down to it, it – it is good to see different types of people. And there are a lot of people out there that are that maybe grew up in decades past that probably wish they would have seen someone more like them on the magazine yes. covers and make them feel less alone and less so different. And that's okay. That's okay. And like we've said in weeks prior, you don't know where the person has been. You don't know what they're up against. You don't know what their labs say. So I think it's really easy to make a flippant comment, but it's another thing to say, hey, look, we don't really know what, what someone's been through. You know what my favorite part of all this is, is Tess is comfortable in her own skin. And I'm seeing this as a movement more and more as I kind of circumnavigate across social media. A lot of people are starting to speak out. They're starting to say, hey, this is the first time I've ever taken a picture of myself and all my glory and all my warts and all, and I don't care. I'm okay with who I am. I, that mental 
healthness of it all, uh, where people are coming to a better place about themselves rather than beating themselves up. I see nothing but as a positive will. Yeah, exactly. And and that's not to say that this lady doesn't want to lose weight if she is going through hormonal problems and, and but she's loving her body through it, or at least it seems like that, uh, and through that process. And I think that when you look at any set of, of differences, anything that makes us different, even the, the model that has vitiligo, um, she's an African-American model, and you see her hypopigmentation on her skin. She's different. Uh, and that made waves in in the modeling world and the fashion world. But people aren't saying that's glorifying vitiligo. It's she's just different. And it's and there's beauty in being different. And you don't have to be so uh, cookie cutter when it comes to to magazines these days, I think. Absolutely. And how much would the stress reduce if women especially this tends to hit really hard? They try to live up to this cultural norm of what uh, uh, beauty is supposed to be, you know, how, how much would this help the collectiveness of us all for us all to do what Tess has done and be bold and be proud, uh, of who and what she is and not really care what other people think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, let's move into the hot topics portion of the show. This is where we get a lot of questions, you guys, and we try to conglomerate them into uh, similar theme questions so that we can hit them real fast. And in this hot topic section, this is becoming one of the more popular sections of the show right here at the top of the show. So let's get to the first one, Will. Number one, how long does it take for the increased nightly urination frequency to improve when you go keto? So when you first start shifting your body over from being a sugar burner to a fat burner, you're dumping excess glycogen. Well, the glycogen is stored up in the muscles and it's stored in the muscles in water. And so you're going to pee a lot when you first start. Uh, how long does that last? It only depends on what the person's up against. But like you said, breaking down glycogen releases a lot of water. Um, it depends on how much, honestly, how much carbs people were used to eating, um, how much they have stored in their body as far as the sugar is concerned. Uh, so I would say a couple of days to a couple of weeks, depending on what the person's going through. And I would even say uh, people might have been used to drinking um, a lot of like sugary sodas and things like that. And then you switch over to water and you find your body's kind of telling you to drink a little more. So maybe you're drinking a little more, you're drinking later in the evening than you were before. That could also be contributing to that as well. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, uh, not yeah. long is the answer. <laughs> yeah, not long. And, and insulin, I think normalization is another component there too. Yes. So as insulin, if someone has really high insulin levels and their insulin levels start to normalize because they're not so high, which is not good, these hyperinsulinemia issues, the kidneys start to get rid of more sodium, which can cause more uh, urination too. But you're right. I mean, a lot of times it is just people are drinking more water and that's what it is. It's not so much these other things, which they are a facet too. And that's not a bad thing to be drinking more water. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to the second hot topic. And it says, how can a bariatric patient best keto adapt when it's challenging for them to eat very much food at a time uh, with no ability to intermittent fast? So I'm getting a lot of bariatric patients that are writing to me, Will, and saying, I really want to try this keto thing. 
but I can't fast because I can't fit enough food in those one to two meals. Maybe for this patient population, they need to eat at regimented times just so they can tolerate it. Uh, but are there any other challenges uh, of someone that's had weight loss surgery going keto? I love that these the people that have gone through this are listening to the show. I think that's fantastic. I think obviously they know they feel fuller faster. Uh, that reduces overeating. Uh, it depends on where they're at post-surgery. Uh, obviously, they're going to have to be a, a more restrictive diet right out of the gates, but they can slowly start reintroducing foods over time, over phases. For these people, I generally recommend small meals a day, no long intermittent fasting, but you can do like an eight to six window, just a time-restricted feeding, um, and still be fasting, quote-unquote, over the night, over nighttime. So just eat between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. and slowly increase your fats because a lot of times they don't do well with lots of fats all at once. So you might want to slowly build up your tolerance to uh, healthy fats and uh, go from there. But I think if you do that and lean into it, you're going to still see the amazing benefits that, that people are seeing. You're just going to have to modify it a little bit. Yeah. Well, let's get to the third hot topic. And uh, this is one that uh, uh, several people sent in. So I was like, well, I guess we should make it a hot topic. Is keto beneficial in any way to a patient who has full-blown sickle cell anemia? Uh, can you t Is that autoimmune? What is sickle cell anemia as far as disease classification? So sickle cell anemia is not autoimmune uh, this time. This is an inherited sickle cell disease, basically. It is a disease that affects the red blood cells and the protein, specifically hemoglobin. Um, so this is typically running in families, obviously, and it's passed down from parents to their kids. And people know it, you know, from early on because yeah. it's in the family and they're getting tested. Um, so there are high levels of nutrient deficiencies, or I should say nutrient deficiencies are pretty pervasive in um, this population of people because it can cause malabsorption issues and people in general are not eating nutrient-dense diets. So you have the standard Western diet plus a condition that causes malabsorption issues. You can create more amplified nutrient deficiencies here in, this, in the sickle cell anemia pe uh, people, the population there. So I would say a lot of the real food keto, uh, like your book talks about, Kimmy, uh, Jimmy, is that um, we these are the nutrients that your body needs. Um, so when you're talking about grass-fed beef, you're talking about organ meats, talking about collagen-rich foods and obviously vegetables with all their phytonutrients, these are the, the nutrients that these people are deficient in. So I would say working on real food, nutrient-dense foods in this ketogenic context is, is something that's very beneficial for people that have malabsorption issues, whether it's sickle cell anemia or another condition. But specific to sickle cell anemia, I know of studies that show that omega fats specifically and fat-soluble vitamins, specifically vitamin E, which again, we're talking about fats and fat-soluble vitamins that would be in the ketogenic diet, they actually are really beneficial to decrease risk factors for people with sickle cell anemia. So the foods that we're focusing on I, I know of studies where uh, you can improve outcomes and improve the quality of life. You're not going to change this genetic disorder, but you can mitigate risk factors that are associated with this uh, inherited disease. I don't know of any studies specifically to ketosis, but 
Um, I would say the anti-inflammatory benefits, uh, the mitochondrial benefits are going to behoove anybody that has a, um, a problem like this. Yeah, I remember I was a manager of a retail store in the 90s, and one of my employees, uh, one of my best employees, really awesome human being uh, named Salim, he, uh, he had sickle cell anemia. And so literally at any given moment, he could call in and say, I, I just, I can't, I can't move around. I'm just that anemic. Um, yeah. And it was not fun because he had those often and left me scrambling as the manager to fill his shifts. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get to the fourth uh, hot topic. How can a type one diabetic maintain therapeutic levels of ketones if they have to regularly take in carbohydrates in order to deal with hypoglycemic episodes. A lot of type ones, they fear the hypoglycemia as they should. They've been kind of uh, had that drilled into them. Don't allow your body to drop in blood sugar. And so they take carbs. And so one of the things that I would add or say back to a lot of these questions that are asking this is if you, you know, are you keto adapted regularly because you would uh, prevent those hypoglycemias from taking place, right? Absolutely. Um, and can I just say real fast that I realized that I, my tongue was twisted and I called you Kimmy, which I think is really I'm Kimmy. Funny. I've been called worse, Will. <laughs> I, I've, I've been called worse, Bill. <laughs> I was reading over the question and my mind was, oh my gosh. You corrected Kimmy. it. You said my name yeah. after you said right. Kimmy. You I'm said thinking of Kimmy Gibbler, Full House reference. Sorry about that. Yes, Jimmy right, Kimmel. So yeah. <laughs> the type 1 diabetic uh, issue here. Um, you can talk to people in the keto world that are type 1 diabetic, like Dr. Diolis, Carrie Diolis, a friend of ours, uh, she is thriving uh, type 1 diabetic eating this way. She eats a plant-based, uh, actually a vegan keto, completely vegan keto diet and is thriving. Um, her blood sugar is more stabilized. She's tests. She has a continuous glucose monitor. She's uh, on top of her numbers. And I think that's really what it comes down to. You just eat the way that, that we're talking about on this show uh, you get the benefits of it. You have more blood sugar stabilization and you, because you're a type one diabetic and not a type two, you have to inject insulin throughout the day. And as long as you're managing your disease, you, what people find is that their blood sugar is more stable than it ever was eating the standard diabetic recommended diet, eating this way. Uh, so this is something that I've seen clinically for the past 10 years. Obviously, we have colleagues that eat this way as well that are type one diabetic I have family members that are type 1 diabetic that eat this way. Uh, it is way more stabilizing to the blood sugar uh, than uh, the standard traditional diabetic recommended diet. Uh, so that's what I would say about that. Yeah, we've had some type 1 uh, diabetics come on the low-carb cruise and speak before. Hannah Boethius uh, gets her name out there quite a bit, and and she's always posting her blood sugar and if she starts to get a hypo, yeah, you take in enough carbohydrate to prevent that from going crazy, but it's not this, you know, massive amount of carbohydrates that should negatively impact your ketosis. Exactly, right. And it's going back to that bigger point that people or maybe that are asking this question, a ketogenic diet is not a no-carb diet. Uh, you still are having carbohydrates and you can eat to your tolerance to still get the benefits of ketosis. So I'm curious, because of the glucose effects of protein, uh, obviously you need fast acting to bring back up the blood sugar if you go into a hypo, but would protein serve as kind of a mix with carbs, uh, some protein to bring it back quick and provide kind of this sustainable 
You see where I'm going with the question? Oh yeah, for sure. But from as far as far as a blood sugar stabilizing tool to use and having protein with your meals, uh, yeah, definitely, it is a stabilizing uh, food source, a macronutrient food fuel. Uh, definitely, anybody could implement it, but specifically this population of type one diabetics and type one point five, these late autoimmune. Diabetics of adulthood, yep. uh, they both could use protein sources throughout their day. Um, and then the biggest thing here for them is that they just have to be more diligent with testing. Yes. They're going to have to be te diligent with testing their ketones, diligent with testing their, their glucose. That's what it is more than anything. As long as they're being diligent with testing and adjusting everything accordingly, they, they will be great. And most type 1 diabetics are wearing a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, whether it's the Dexcom G, whatever the latest edition is, or Freestyle Libre or whatever they're using to track that. Yeah. Well, let's get to the fifth and final hot topic. Does experiencing chronically excessive cortisol levels inhibit the body from entering a state of nutritional ketosis? And my answer would be yes, indirectly, <laughs> because when you have elevated cortisol, that tends to raise your blood sugar. Well, raised blood sugar is very anti-ketogenic. So <laughs> if you have higher blood sugar levels, it's really hard for your body to, uh, I guess, dump the glucose effects that would come from that and get into ketosis. Is that right? Yeah, I would definitely say that. That's one of the main mechanisms that I would say would be uh, inhibiting uh, proper ketosis for some people. Um, for most people, their excessive cortisol levels aren't a, the only driving factor here, meaning they still will get some ketosis. It just won't be optimized when their cortisol rhythm is off. But for sure, it can be a linchpin, a, a hurdle for some people that have pretty uh, dysregulated brain adrenal axis, the HPA axis, which is what's driving this cortisol circadian rhythm. Uh, we want cortisol higher in the morning and this sort of nice S-shaped circadian rhythm throughout the day. We can measure that on urine and saliva something specifically called the cortisol awakening response. And that's something that we run for patients to kind of see what that's go what's going on there. And that can influence, like you said, blood sugar, blood pressure, and inflammation specifically. So yes. cortisol is anti-inflammatory. So your body's actually doing, and many times doing what it's supposed to, to manage inflammation levels. So my question would be, yes, okay, let's deal with the cortisol rhythm. But ultimately, we have to ask the question, What's driving that cortisol to be off in the first place? Is it stress, like just life stress, or is it something else? Because you can look at things like the gut or viral issues or bacterial issues, some immune-based problem that may be driving inflammation. So the body's actually adapting by raising cortisol levels to be in this sort of fight or flight response. So that's something too, is not just worry about the cortisol and getting that down, which that's certainly a component to that, but what's actually the root cause of why the cortisol is high in the first place? Is it emotional, mental stress, or is it some physiological stress? And that's something that each person would have to kind of assess for themselves, or obviously we do that in functional medicine, but people have to figure that out to see what's driving that. Yeah. Well, let's get to today's first uh, question we're going to address here on the show. And I love it, love it, love it that we have so many people in the medical profession that listen to Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole. That to me is is the highest praise uh, for you as a fellow health professional and for me as an interviewer. 
uh, and podcaster. It's it's just really neat to hear that there are physicians out there and and other people in the medical field trying to expand their knowledge. And today we have one such person. Her name Dr. Kathy. She says hi, Jimmy and Will. I am a traveling podiatrist and mostly work in hospitals and nursing homes where I have seen the most atrocious nutrition for the elderly, diabetics, and cardiac patients. I've personally been keto for three months. I feel great, but I have a question about gut health that I'm hoping you can answer for me. Well, that's what Dr. Guil Cole does, so stay tuned. I've been diagnosed with candida as well as an intestinal parasite, pinworms, and prior to shifting to a ketogenic diet, I did a candida and parasite cleanse, and eating low-carb now is likely keeping those going. I consume fermented foods several times a week, and I also take probiotics with no gut symptoms at all. My question is about diatomaceous earth, which I've been taking a tablespoon of food-grade quality for the past few months to aid in killing the parasites. Will taking this over the long term negatively impact my good gut bacteria and thus the balance of my microbiome? And are there any safety concerns with using this over the long term? What, what else would Dr. Will recommend for candida and parasitic infections that I'm not already doing? I really love keto talk, so keep up the great work, Dr. Kathy. So Dr. Kathy has given a question to you, Will, that I think you could wax eloquently on probably for the next three hours. But let's uh, see what three to four minutes is to the answer to this question. What are the best things to add to your ketogenic diet to best deal with candida and parasitic infections to heal the gut? That is a great question for me. Thank you, Dr. Kathy. And again, I love that people in the healthcare field... Uh, are listening to the show. I think that's, I, I just I get excited about that, about people that are in the conventional system listening to this show and wanting to implement this in their lives, in their patients' lives. It's really cool to be a part of. Um, all right. So when you're talking about candida overgrowth and parasitic issues, which when you're talking about these things, those are two words that have a lot of weight to them when you're talking about the health blogosphere and people um, thinking it's a little bit too woo-woo and weird and, you know, what are you saying, like, if you have candida overgrowth or parasite? So it's important to know for sure that you have it and running the best labs available to see what's going on. And obviously, I'm assuming this that Dr. Kathy knows this as a physician. She's looking into this. But I would say a lot of people that aren't doctors that are maybe think they have it and they're treating themselves on their own with for these problems, I find that to be an issue for a lot of people is that they have a lot of symptoms like this, so they think they have it, um, and then they're treating without really knowing for sure. So I would say just because it looks like something in health doesn't mean it it always is. So run labs to find out for sure if you're going to treat for it, and also to get a baseline to then compare your treatments and see how it's working, obviously taking into conjunction you improving your symptoms too. Uh, through the treatment. So with that said, beyond labs and what you actually asked, some things to bring into your ketogenic walk or lifestyle uh, to deal with these issues, specific with candida overgrowth, and we all have candida. It's important to know that, that uh, it's, it's the Goldilocks principle. You don't want it too much. You don't want too little. So we all have what's called the mycobiome and it's different than the microbiome. The microbiome is all the good yeast and fungus that's supposed to be in our micro and in the, in the gastrointestinal system and a part of the larger microbiome. Um, but the problem is 
yeast and fungal overgrowth, just like bacterial overgrowths are a problem too. So things that I use to be like a pruning of this balance, meaning that it's not an acute yeast infection. It doesn't need necessarily a pharmaceutical antifungal. Uh, you just need a slight pruning uh, to bring balance back to that. Some ones, that, uh, some natural agents that have a, some pretty strong studies backing them up as far as their effectiveness is caprylic acid, which is in coconut oil. So you could use all uh, like a whole food form of it in coconut oil, or is that the C eight? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and coconut oil. Uh, a, doesn't have it's not all caprylic acid so what you could do is also get the caprylic acid by itself that's just a concentrated higher form of that in a supplement form uh, and oregano oil is another one you can get that in the form of essential oils or capsules as well garlic you can get also garlic extract if you don't want to use the whole food form and black tea so these are all real food very keto uh, plant-based keto at that uh, food medicines for you to help that have been shown in the scientific literature to be beneficial in candida overgrowths. What Ka Dr. Kathy was using is diatomaceous earth, which is basically pulverized like uh, sea fossils. Uh, I'm probably not eloquently talking about that, but it basically is just this fine powder, but on a microscopic level, it can draw toxins out and basically cut up any yeast and fungus. So it's very harmless to humans. But when you're talking about things in the gut, it can definitely clear things out of the gut. So it's one tool to use as well. Um, I prefer these other things. I think those plus diatomaceous earth can be great. And I've seen patients see good results with that. Um, Saccharomyces boulardii is another one that's used. It's like a non-pathogenic type of yeast, a very benign beneficial yeast. That right, what was that one again? It sounded like you said Chef Boyardee. Say that one more time. <laughs> and with my tongue being tied and calling you Kimmy today, it probably <laughs> could have been, but it's Saccharomyces Boyardee. Got it. Um, and it is a big, long, probably Latin word that um, it's big, it's found in a lot of different probiotic blends. If you look at the ingredients, you can get it by itself as well. I don't love Saccharomyces to use it tons of times and without testing, because what can happen is that that yeast can overgrow too, um, which it's pretty much asymptomatic, but I still want balance in the microbiome. I don't want random yeast overgrowths going on here, but I think some smart supplementation can be used to help balance out the candida overgrowth. And then specific to the parasitic issues, again, running labs, seeing what's going on there for sure. Uh, things like wormwood, which is you know aptly named, uh, it is a herb that helps with. Uh, it's an antiparasitic, a natural botanical antiparasitic. Oregano oil again is uh, good for parasitic issues. Black walnut, something we talk about in the show a lot, is berberine. That's also an antimicrobial, antiparasitic. Grapefruit seed extract. Uh, uh, those are some of the top antiparasitic things. So you can see. Some food-based ones, they're all food-based, but some you can get in your meals and some of the higher concentrations you would get in powder or capsule form. And the dosage depends on what the patient needs, how bad the uh, overgrowth is, and um, I would retest to make sure that these things are improving. Yeah, when she wrote this question, uh, and thank you for that, Dr. Kathy, the question, uh, she talked about the diatomaceous earth. 
I bought that for my garden. Uh, it helps keep like the bugs off of the yeah. tomato plants in my garden. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you sticking same, that in your mouth, really? <laughs> same thing, but it's food grade, not right. the like industrial grade. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, caprylic acid is C8. If you're looking for like MCT oil, a lot of companies are now targeting in on just using caprylic acid. Um, are there any problems with just this concentrated form of C8? Well, too much of it can cause some GI looseness, uh, GI uh, symptoms, uh, but that's dosing too high right. for the individual. And that's not just the caprylic acid. That's right. really any one of these things, the oregano oil, the garlic, all of these things, too much of it can cause some uh, GI uh, disturbances like uh, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, uh, and these Herxheimer response, these sort of die-off type symptoms too. Uh, so it's important to know, am I overdosing or is this a Herxheimer response? Is this sort of a die-off response? Uh, and sometimes that's a little bit confusing. And that's part of my job is to kind of say, okay, is this person just doing too much too soon or is right. this normal and will it pass? It's not an easy answer. Everybody's different, but it's definitely something that's for anybody going through these issues. It's part of that healing process to figure that out. And then, Will, you mentioned the mycobiome. Uh, to be differentiated from microbiome. Is that myco as in like mycotoxin spelled the same way, M-Y-C-O? Yeah, the same prefix there, M-Y-C-O. It's just the like the Latin or Latin or Greek uh, sort of root word that uh, it has to do with yeast and, and fungus. Dr. Kathy, you, you helped us learn so much in this question. So thank you for asking that question. And guys, we're going to take a break here real quick, and we'll be right back with today's health headlines. Hi, I'm Christine Moore, Jimmy Moore's wife, and I'm here today to tell you about the Nutritional Therapy Association and why I decided to go through their Nutritional Therapy Practitioner Program. I figured, well, this will be a great opportunity for me to maybe possibly be able to help people with their nutritional issues and anything that they might be going through. Just the thought of me having to learn stuff again, it was intimidating. I didn't think that I would be able to do it. I didn't think that I would be able to retain the stuff that I was learning and I would have a hard time on the quizzes and the tests. The NTA is looking for more keto practitioners. They believe in real food. They do not frown upon good, healthy fats. They believe that they should be a healthy part of the diet. The most most gratifying part of the program has been getting to meet a bunch of like-minded people who are interested in nutrition. A lot of us came into this program with health issues of our own that we wanted to try to fix. The material that we're learning is just absolutely incredible. I thought I knew a lot about nutrition, but going through this program, there's so much more to it than what I actually knew. We learn about anatomy and physiology, so we learn about how things work in the body body, how vitamins and minerals affect the body. So it's just been a great program. Anyone should do this program. It's a nine-month program that can pretty much fit into anybody's schedule. I mean, we have people that have children, full-time jobs going through this. So it's very flexible with your schedule. If you're thinking about it and not sure, I would highly recommend you go through it. Join the Nutritional Therapy Association today at nutritionaltherapy.com. 
If you're a fan of fat, then you need to try the F-Bombs. Go to JimmyLovesFBomb.com, enter the coupon code JimmyLovesFBomb, and you'll get 20% off of your first order. So what are these F-Bombs? They are nut butters, and they have incredible combinations of coconut and macadamia nut, macadamia nut butter, and my favorite is salted chocolate macadamia nut butter. They also have several oil blends including the house blend, the MCT oil, as well as coconut oil. If you want your fat on the go, then you need to check out JimmyLovesFBomb.com. And once again, use the coupon code JimmyLovesFBomb. You'll get 20% off your first order. JimmyLovesFBomb.com. We're back here on Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole. KetoTalk.com is our website if you want full show notes for this and every episode, but we're up to the health headlines portion of the show, and this is where we look at what is making news in the world of health, and this first one I could not resist, Will. Uh, when Nina Teicholz or Gary Taubes writes an article, we're going to talk about it here on this show because usually it's very well written, and this first one uh, is from the LA Times by Nina. Uh, Sloppy science bears substantial blame for America's bad Americans, bad eating habits. And so she goes into the story about Dr. Brian, Brian Wansink, a Cornell University research scientist who was all the rage right at about a decade ago when he was doing these small plate versus big plate studies and putting a bowl of M&Ms next to a desk uh, and then throwing it into the other room and, you know, making the claim that you eat less of it if you have to get up to go get it. On and on. I actually had him on the Living La Vida Low Carb show and and re-aired that podcast last week if you guys want to go listen. But uh, he fudged the data. And this is why people like Nina and others trying to make the science solvent again. um, This is why we remain so passionate about it, because you've got people like this who are fudging data. And if Brian Wansink did it, Will, I'm sure it's happening a whole lot more than we even realize. Yeah, this is a great piece. I want to meet Nina someday. I think that'll be really cool. You've never she's met a lot her. Of, wow. No, never met her, but I, she's, she's one of my heroes. Yeah. The, but, but basically what she says in this article that's really important to understand is that these policies and the dietary uh, advice that are that's happening here is not just basic dietary advice that you read in an article. This is actually really um, they have powerful implications. They drive choices for school lunches, feeding programs for the elderly, hospital food, military rations, all of this from weak science. Uh, this is really uh, powerful uh, to know what this can happen. And, and hopefully this shakeup here can kind of bring back to the drawing board uh, some new uh, and new uh, data and new research coming out so we can start making better advice for these groups of people. Well, and it's one drum that we've banged here again and again and again when we talk about studies is we need more randomized controlled clinical trials in nutritional health, and they're very expensive to do. They generally take a very long time, and you don't usually have patients willing, uh, uh, study participants willing to be locked up in a metabolic ward for a year or two on end. (laughs) And so they're incredibly difficult to do And yet maybe this example of Brian Wansink will make people rethink about what we think about 
like data that comes out that's more observational type of data or mouse study data and do actual real research. Yeah. Here's hoping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's get to the next health headline. This one's from The Fit Housewife. Why I'll never go keto again. And so she goes through all the kind of pros and cons of what happened to her with the keto diet. Uh, did a pretty pretty decent job of explaining uh, what the ketogenic diet is. But I want to go down in the article somewhat where she talks about how there are dangers in the keto diet. Of course, she talks about high cholesterol, which we've uh, spoken ad nauseum on this show about constipation, uh, decreased muscle, uh, mineral deficiencies. And, and then she gives into her experience that it didn't work well for her. Uh, so thus, it could not possibly work well for anybody else. What do you think about this one? I think it was it was own, her own personal take. I think that what this came down to more than anything when I saw this this article and read her where she was coming from, I don't know if she was actually going into this with the best attitude. And I can't judge this ultimately. But what I would say is I see people that are going through this and then they don't have a good relationship with food in general. And yeah. then they're coming in and then they're blaming this on the ketogenic diet. Uh, whereas she did better and she feels it's good to just have everything in moderation and she just is less stressed. So I agree. Stressing about your food isn't good. And if you don't have a good relationship with food and if you don't enjoy why you're doing what you're doing, I think that negativity and stress and anxiety about food is going to sabotage anything you do, whether it's a ketogenic diet or something else. So I think what I see, I see that shining through this article more than anything, not the reasons as to why not to do the ketogenic diet. I think it has more to do for her why not to do anything different than just be moderate with everything, which certainly there are people that can get away with that. They're not yeah. going to see, they're not going through any major health problems and they are eating generally good and clean and they feel all right. Um, so, you know, more power to her if she's one of those people. Well, and one thing that kind of stood out to me in reading this, uh, this piece was not once did she talk about uh, testing to get into ketosis or blood sugar readings or any changes that happened in her uh, metabolic health markers. I would have loved to have seen like went before she started like what HSCRP was or what triglycerides were or what uh, A1C was. And then after she was on it for a period of time, how were the numbers then? Because sometimes our perception of the success or failure of the ketogenic diet falls completely on how much weight has happened, weight loss has happened, or mm -hmm. just subjective types of things and not actual hard data like blood ketone levels and blood sugar and all the other things I just mentioned. Um, so that was the biggest disappointment to me is don't call it keto when we really have no idea if you actually were keto or not. Exactly. So, and we've seen articles like this before because it, it is trending obviously in pop culture. So people want to try it, but they're not really necessarily doing it correctly. And then they make this, this blanket sweeping statement for, for the whole way of eating. And don't put it past some bloggers to say they quote, tried it just so they could diss on it because dissing on keto is kind of the cool thing right now. They did it with paleo about four yeah. or five years ago. Everybody was dissing on paleo and now they're doing the same thing to keto. I'm not discouraged by this. I know it's the right diet 
for me and so many people listening, but there are people that read this kind of stuff and they go, oh, I guess I shouldn't try that. Yeah. Well, let's get to the next headline. Yes, keto diarrhea is a thing. How the popular <laughs> diet can disrupt digestion. I thought of you when I was reading this one. I'm like, oh, <laughs> Mr. Gut Health is going to have fun with this one. So uh, so they talk about the uh, popular diet keto can lead to some unfortunate GI symptoms, uh, focuses on vegetables, protein, and very few carbohydrates. Um, and it's uh, 5% carbs, 20% protein, 75% fat, works by sending your body into ketosis, yada, yada, yada. So in the gut, though, according to health experts, your GI system can take quite the hit when you switch up how you eat. Uh, and so they got this uh, person that's a nutritionist to say whenever you cut out certain food groups in your diet, an imbalance will occur and the gut microbiome feeds off of short chain fatty acids that are found in grains, fruits and vegetables, which you obviously limit on the keto diet. And then you start to develop this really nasty condition called the keto flu and for a couple of weeks, the uh, gut microbiome has to adjust to your new meal pattern. They go on and on and on trying to make it look like that keto is a bad idea. And they do say some good things I, I want you to comment on, too, about the artificial sweeteners being a culprit in, in diarrhea and gut health issues. But what do you think about this one overall? I I. I... And happy laugh. that they, I, I, I like the, the headlines pretty. Yes, keto diarrhea is a thing. Like that's the headline. <laughs> but Excuse I me, think I got to go to the bathroom. I got diarrhea. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but ultimately it is, when it comes down to it, they, what they're saying is it's going to impact your digestion. Let me talk about that in a second. I do, what I do love is that they brought up artificial sweeteners, which it is low carb. There are many people listening to this right now that go for the, aspartame and the sucralose and the diet drinks, all in the name of being uh, low carb. I don't think that's healthy. That can impact your digestion, but I'm concerned with it even beyond digestion. Uh, but that's a whole different topic. And I agree with the article. If you're depending on, on more of those things, they can cause some GI upset. Now, what they're saying is, well, yes, you can have looser stools or diarrhea with a ketogenic diet, but they also mentioned the constipation, which is normally what you hear is that a ketogenic diet will cause constipation, and that's one of the reasons not to do it. So it's both of those things, but really when you look at it and like just coming from my perspective of seeing so many people over the years with so many different ways of eating, really any change in your diet is going to impact your microbiome, anyone. And it can cause more constipation or more looser stools, especially at the beginning um, when your microbiome is adjusting. So, yeah, people are picking on the ketogenic diet, but I could think of every diet out there, any way of whatever they would quote unquote call it, is people, especially with digestive issues, are going to have an adaptation adjustment period. That's not just the ketogenic diet. I actually don't see any more digestive adjustments with the ketogenic diet that I've seen with any other one. So I think a lot of this is just a hyper focus on the keto diet right now because that's what everybody's talking about. Mm -hmm. But really, the microbiome has to adjust to any different way of eating. Yeah, I just interviewed a guy on Living La Vida earlier this week who was a vegan and he said, I was feeling bloated and I just wasn't energetic. And he switched to keto and the bloating went away. So that showed that keto at least had a profound positive impact, at least on his gut health, as compared with the vegan diet. 
Yeah, absolutely. People say they can get more bloated and constipated when they go Whole30, when they go vegan, when they go carnivore. It depends on the person. It depends on their own specific microbiome. And, and, and normally, the body will adjust over time and doesn't mean that it's optimal for them and they may have to adjust things from there. But this initial claim of keto diarrhea or keto constipation, <laughs> I think, is a little bit dramatic. I think that that's really any change of the foods that we eat. Can you imagine, the, anyway, if we were at a conference of keto and everybody has to run to the bathroom, but there's only one bath, I'm just kidding. If keto. <laughs> I know, diarrhea, but we should all wear diapers. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, you're telling our secret, Will. <laughs> we all have depends on, guys. It's just part of the deal. TMI alert. Well, let's get to the next health headline to get out of that question. Uh <laughs> Bloomberg has this one, and I loved this one. This one was so amazing to me. Millennials kill again. The latest victim, American cheese. Multi-generational staple falls victim to millennial palates. When Wendy's opts for Asiago, it's not an optimistic signal. So American cheese will never die. It has too many preservatives in it. I love that line. But it's melting away. One by one, America's food outlets are abandoning the century-old American staple. In many cases, they're replacing it with fancy cheeses. Wendy now has Asiago. Uh, A&W's Canadian locations now use real cheddar. McDonald's sells Big Macs um, with soft orange square of American cheese with a version that doesn't contain artificial preservatives. Cracker Barrel uses uh, old-fashioned grilled cheese. So did Panera Bread, replacing American with a four-cheese combo of Fontina, Cheddar, Manto, and Smoked Gouda. And they all have seen increased sales. And so this is something that's been fascinating to me since my eyes were opened that American cheese is not cheese. It's a food product, cheese food product, <laughs> not cheese. Look, look at it on the front of the Kraft Singles, guys. It says a cheese product, not cheese. And so this is a good sign, I think, that yeah. the millennials are the one really pushing this move mm -hmm. back to real food again. Yeah, I like this. And all the Europeans are like, where have you guys been? Yeah, I know, right? But, <laughs> but uh, the, you know, what? where does cheese whiz stand against all of these cheese? I don't know. Is that count? I guess that would be processed American <laughs> cheese as well, but it's not. Sliced cheese, I guess. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm happy about this. This is good. People are getting better quality cheeses. People are interested in grass-fed cheeses and raw cheeses. And yes, this is a good thing for the American diet. Yeah, I, it's always been crazy to me. Like Velveeta as well. That's another one that people used to like. And now I think it's running out of uh, steam as well. Yeah. Kudos, millennials. Thanks for getting that out of, uh, or at least pushing it towards getting out of our lives for good. Well, let's get to the last health headline, Organic Consumers Association. Vegans, ranchers, and regenerators unite. Why fake meat and eliminating livestock are really bad ideas. Well, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but basically it's all of these people coming together and saying, hey, look, um, we have... All the all these people that are wanting vegan meats and it's just silly <laughs> to to be eliminating livestock uh, when there's really nothing wrong with uh, real meat that's uh, grass fed and, and properly taken care of and all the good things that we talk about here. Uh, what do you think about this one? I actually think we talked. It's interesting that this article came out 
And I think we talked about it on last week's show. Uh, someone asked about the environmental uh, implications of the ketogenic diet and kind of right. spurring it off of my plant-based keto sort of approach to the ketotarian. That's right. I think this is really cool. This is what I was trying to say in a more eloquent written down version of uh, the fact that we can see what we have in common here between vegans, real food vegans, and this, these regenerative farmers, these holistic farmers. I think this is really the future of how do we do farming properly uh, without these extremist, tribalist approaches on both sides, which really are A, unrealistic, B, divisive. Uh, and I think that we need to really come together and say, how can we do things smartly? And then if so-and-so wants to be a completely vegan keto eater, let them do that. But they are they can still see how can we do farming in a proper way, uh, in a healthy way for our world, uh, for our health. Um, so I, I think this is a good move. Yeah, I think the sooner, sooner we can get rid of CAFOs, the whole concentrated animal feeding operation, that is what is driving a lot of the angst of even some of the vegan people towards meat. It's that kind of condition um, mm -hmm. that if we got rid of that and really did what Alan Savory suggests in his TEDx talk uh, or his TED talk, um, we could really change this world. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, let's get to the study portion of the show. We always like to take a look at what's making news in the world of research as it relates to the topic we talk about on this show. This is October 2018 in JAMA and JAMA Psychiatry, actually. Evaluation of the concurrent trajectories of cardiometabolic risk factors in the 14 years before dementia. And so the researchers wanted to know... Uh, what are the trajectories of the established cardiometabolic risk factors that happen about 14 years before dementia is even uh, seen in a patient? So they took a control study of 3,925 participants and they they started tracking them. And what they wanted to, uh, to do was uh, see if they could see signs of uh, dementia forming long before it's actually diagnosed. Um, really fascinating that it has nothing to do with cholesterol or some of the other things that mainstream medicine likes to look at. Uh, it came down to, Will, blood sugar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's down to that point of what uh, studies have referenced and we talk about a lot in functional medicine. And I think that We've talked a lot about in the ketogenic community as well as the fact that dementia, Alzheimer's is referred to as type 3 diabetes, and it doubles your risk factor. There's studies that have shown this, and this study it just is re showing this in a fresh way, uh, that it doubles your risk factor. Uh, some studies show that, or it increases regardless your risk factor for Alzheimer's, people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes that are uncontrolled glucose. So this is um, important and yet another reason to get your insulin and your blood sugar levels balanced with, with food. Uh, and that's really at the heart of a lot of what we're talking about here on the show. I love in the conclusion, they said, overall, these findings suggest that lowering the elevated glycemia, blood sugar, 
lowering blood pressure, and losing weight may be the primary targets for the management of cardiometabolic health for primary and secondary prevention of dementia in the older age range. So maybe you're not quite in the older age range yet. Those are your three targets, lower uh, blood sugar, lower blood pressure, and lower body weight. And those will hopefully stave off dementia. Yeah. And another thing the study doesn't talk about that I would add to that is homocysteine levels. Yes. Um, above seven is something that uh, there's evidence to show it's a neurotoxin. It increases blood-brain barrier permeability. And that's something that we look in functional medicine, too, in addition to those other markers. And homocysteine is a measure and marker uh, primarily of inflammation uh, in the body, which, again, you want lower inflammation, which would mm -hmm. prevent the dementia as well. Yeah. Well, let's pause here real quick. We'll be back with today's featured questions. Have you been interested in trying the new cutting-edge technology of exogenous ketones but didn't know where to get started? Let me introduce you to Perfect Keto. Visit perfectketo.com jimmy and use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 15% off your order. Perfect Keto was created by a functional medicine clinician who developed this unique formula for maximum efficacy. It's great tasting and the most affordable exogenous ketone supplement you can find that raises blood ketone levels up to 1.5 millimolar to help increase mental focus, boost your energy, and commence fat burning. It does not contain any soy, dairy, gluten, artificial sweeteners, binding agents, or anything that doesn't directly improve your health. The synergistic power of a low-carb, moderate-protein, high-fat ketogenic diet with perfect keto exogenous ketones will have your body running optimally. Perfect Keto is available in delicious chocolate sea salt and peaches and cream flavors. Each serving comes with 11.38 grams of high-quality beta-hydroxybutyrate for maximum ketone boosting while adding in magnesium, potassium, cocoa, stevia, and vitamin C for extra micronutrition. Again, try Perfect Keto for yourself at perfectketo.com jimmy and be sure to use the coupon code LLV at checkout to get 15% off your order. Perfect Keto. Living La Vida Low Carb, talking about a low carb diet, uh -huh. getting your body healthy, and ain't no doubt about it, yeah, it's really about ketosis, a ketogenic life, yeah, a real time indicator for ketosis called ketonics, Woo. it measures your breath for ketones, are you burning fat, uh -huh. it's the first of its kind, all my ketonians, where you at, hey, I'm just here to let you know, wanna look and feel incredible, we living La Vida Low Carb, get your body healthy and live long, hey. Keep my fats high, and my carbs low. Need my glucose down right now, pronto. Check my ketones, look at the stats, yo. With ketonics, now I'm in the burning fat zone. Ketonics, we burning fat, yeah, we own it, yeah, yeah. With ketonics, I'm burning fat, and I'm on it, yeah, yeah. Living La Vida low carb, I do this every day. If you want to burn that fat, it ain't no other way, yeah. Go to ketonics.co. And for my international followers, it's ketonics.com. Woo! We're back here on Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole, and we're up to the featured questions of the day. We have three of them here in the middle of the show, and the first one is from Jamie. Hello, Jimmy and Will. I love listening to your podcast, and now I need your help. 
Since beginning intermittent fasting with a low-carb diet in April, I lost 15 pounds I wasn't even trying to lose. I've had high cholesterol and high blood pressure my entire adult life, despite never being obese and exercising regularly. I'm 55 years old, female, 5 foot 4 inches tall, and I weigh 130 pounds. I've been taking a statin medication as well as aspirin therapy for 15 years and blood pressure medication for the past 7 years. My triglyceride to HDL ratio is stellar at under 1, despite having elevated total and LDL cholesterol, but my heart calcium score is 0. Despite these signs of being heart healthy, my doctors are pushing me to take higher and higher doses of statin medications. I've consistently refused, but it's getting frustrating dealing with their persistence about this, saying there is no downside to taking this drug as a preventative measure. Are you kidding me? Do you guys have any words of motivation or encouragement to throw my way because all the doctors I've talked to are statin-happy pill pill pushers and dismiss me as an ignorant, uninformed, and non-compliant patient? I'm sure the cholesterol thing will come up again when I see my doctor in a few weeks, and I'm bracing myself to hear the same old, same old without blowing a gasket. Just kidding. Well, kind of. What can I do? Blessings, Jamie. So Jamie uh, wants to know, what can someone with high cholesterol and a family history of heart disease tell their doctor who keeps pushing higher and higher doses of statin medications? Well, one, you could give them cholesterol clarity. You could do do that, Uh, educate them about uh, cholesterol. Um, But I would, here's the deal. I would do it in a non-confrontational way. Be humble. Make statements in the form of questions. Don't be preaching uh, to them. You're coming into their space. You're coming into their office. You don't know. They're probably overbooked. They are used to being robotic in the sense of you have this, take this pill, and most people aren't going to argue with them. So you're going to really shift that whole energy in the room when you come guns blazing and you're trying to be confrontational about this. So I think that you need to, uh, the Bible says, a soft answer turns away wrath. And I think that that applies here, is that you don't have to be the missionary for the ketogenic diet in this way. You're not going to change their mind in the 15 minutes that you have there. Um, And you just have to realize that you kind of have to play the game, be humble. I would say ask if they would run the NMR tests, ask if they'd run homocysteine, ask if they would run uh, these extra labs, uh, high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Um, If they are still aggressive or unwilling to be supportive of your health decisions, go get a new doctor. And that's really what it comes down to it. Because if they're not going to budge at all, you're not going to change their mind. Uh, You're not going to be the one person that's going to change it. It's really unlikely. Uh, You can do the best you can, say it with uh, humility. um, And then from there, I would say that you may want to get a new doctor if they're not going to budge on anything. Well, and you have to remind yourself, too, that you're the boss in that relationship. You've hired that doctor to be a consultant in your health and no business would ever hire a consultant and the consultant then take over the business and make all the decisions. At the end of the day, you're the CEO and founder of Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you make those decisions and you take his advice and his wonderful schooling and training about how to help you uh, under advisement. But at the end of, end of the day, if you feel like your markers have you in a good state of health, why would you change? 
Now, you sometimes can play the games with them so you're not dinged as a non-compliant patient. Maybe you take the statin uh, prescription from him so that he is off the hook, but then no obligation on your part to fill that thing um, and do what you think is right for you. Uh, it sounds like you are very strong-willed in this, and and you definitely don't want to have a fight, like Will said. Um, I'd be really curious to see how all this uh, ends up for you, Jamie. But your numbers uh, are pretty spectacular. Having a, a really good triglyceride-to-HDL ratio is never a bad thing. And heart wow. calcium score of zero. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's get to the second feature question. This one, uh, I didn't write the name down. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, there it is. Sean. I, it was under the test results. I was looking for his name. Sean wrote this question. Hey, guys, I got some blood work done recently. See below. And the results were positive overall, except for my cortisol regis registering really high at 597. And then something called gamma GT in the liver was borderline low at nine. I'm planning on using the adaptogen ashwagandha powder. See, he, he listens to this show. You probably heard of it here to help with the cortisol. But what's a good dosage and period of time using it before retesting to see if it's improving my cortisol? And is this low gamma GT something that I should be concerned about? Thanks and much love to you, Sean. Uh, so uh, he's obviously an international uh, listener, because it's all in uh, millimoles per liter, but total cholesterol 882, I want to say that's 300 something, uh, HDL 225, so that's right around uh, 80 or 90, I'm trying to do this in my head, it's hard, <laughs> uh, LDL, HSCRP 0.27, so that's really good, triglycerides 1.26, which is about 80 or 90, um, and then cortisol 597, gamma GT 9, so his questions are, how long will it take to lower cortisol levels with ashwagandha? And then is having this low gamma GT something to be concerned about? So the side note here is that we get a lot of international patients and my staff always get excited slash crazed when they have to convert all of these <laughs> units on labs and spreadsheets, but it's part of our job. Yes. But the... Um, so specific with the gamma GT or the gamma glutamyl transferase, it's the GGT you'll see on your labs, Got it. but it's a liver marker. It can show gallbladder dysfunction. It can show certain toxicity issues if it's spiked, but space, basically it's liver function uh, with it just being borderline low. Uh, and just at nine, I don't see it being a major issue. You want to put it in context with the AST and the ALT, these other markers too, that I don't have numbers on right. uh, as far as the labs of what he said. So look at the other liver enzymes, uh, AST and ALT, and put those in context with the GGT. Uh, it doesn't look dramatically out of range. What's the functional range for gamma GT? Um, I'm not exact. I don't have my spreadsheet in front of me. <laughs> this problem. Oh, come on, Will Cole. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> <laughs> I have all these numbers in my mind. I'm calling you Kimmy. Oh boy. So the, uh, I would say this specifically, it doesn't seem major to be a problem here, but it's just borderline low. The um, reference, the optimal range for GGT specifically is not going to be much different 
than the reference range, meaning the range that I looked at on the GGT isn't dramatically different than the optimal range. That's what I would say about that. Um, and that's same with the AST and the ALT. Normally, when it's spiked, when you have things like fatty liver issues or gallbladder problems, those are definitely things that we want to put in context with all of that stuff, plus the lipid markers, plus the insulin and the glucose and the triglycerides. Put all, Look at all of that together. Um, so beyond that, ashwagandha and how long it it should take. It depends. It could take, I see improvements with adaptogens within a week or so for some people. And for some people it can take a month to a couple of months. It depends on really what's going on with that brain adrenal axis. And then specifically, he asked about the dosage of ashwagandha. The studies that are out there in the scientific literature are um, normally between the dosages are between 300 to 500 milligrams uh, of extract from ashwagandha. And I also have seen studies um, to be safe upwards of 1,500 milligrams um, for a time period too. So sometimes you do have to dose a bit higher while you're going, but normally it's about three to 500 milligrams. Retest, see how you feel. You can run a cortisol awakening response test. That's a urine and saliva test that we run on patients. So those are some things to consider. Well, and Sean, regarding the low GGT, uh, keep in mind that whenever you get your test results back and it's, quote, out of range, even like microscopically, like one-tenth of a percent or whatever, um, it will put it highlighted in red as either high or low. I, I saw that with Christine's uh, blood test results that she recently got back from a physical and they showed, you know, low. And then you look at it and it's like one-tenth off of the low end of normal. And so, so I, I think sometimes they scare patients by having that bold and red and it just, it's frustrating for a patient to see that and think something's wrong when, like you said, it's really not that far off of normal. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Sean, thank you for that question. We're up to the third featured question of the day. This one's from Luann. Dear Jimmy and Will, I've been low-carb keto dieting off and on for nearly a decade I'm a full-blown sugar addict, and this is the only way of eating that works for me to keep most of the 50 pounds that I've lost off. I have a high calcium score. I'm working on reducing it by healing my endothelium and dissolve the calcium. I read a study showing the reduced blood flow of a low-carb dieter compared with the increased blood flow of a low-fat dieter, and now I'm confused about whether I'm helping or harming myself. I'm also doing the vitamin C Pauling therapy and Dr. Lester Morrison's study of chondroitin sulfate. Will my keto eating negate the effects that I'm looking for and put me one step closer to having a heart attack like my brother experienced? Any information you would have would be greatly appreciated, Lou Ann. So Lou Ann wants to know, is eating keto contraindicative to healing the endothelium and dissolving calcified plaques? Great question. And just to, I looked up on the spreadsheet real fast for everybody that wants to know. The functional range for, for GGT is 10 to 26. Oh, yeah. She's right off of it. So yeah, he, just he's, he's right off of it. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Sorry about that, everybody. So the um, the specific is the ketogenic uh, contraindicated for people with endothelium issues or calcified plaque issues, um, I would say no. If you're eating a really healthy, real food, ketogenic diet, uh, there's some really exciting studies actually shown of the beneficial metabolic responses specific to endothelial cells here. And they really are centered around 
the two pathways that I am in love with is the NRF2 pathway, this pro-antioxidant, this pro-tissue repair mechanism, and the inhibiting benefits of the inflammations, uh, inflammation levels specifically here, the NF-kappa B, this pro-inflammatory cytokine, the impact that that ketones can have on bringing up these good healthy antioxidant pathways, which is good for endothelial cells, and lowering these pro-inflammatory cytokines that are damaging to endothelial cells. So this is a study actually just published at the top of this year uh, in February 2018 out of the medical journal Nutrients uh, and showing the benefits of the ketogenic diet for this specific reason. NF-kappa-B. It sounds like a, a fraternity to uh, join. <laughs> yeah. You do not want to join this fraternity. It's pro-inflammatory and it'll cause you tons of problems. They, they party all night long, guys. 24-7, yeah. 365. <laughs> it will damage your life and you'll never... Well, Luann, thank you for that question. And we're up to the Keto Talk mailbox portion of the show. This question comes from Jackie. Hi, Jimmy and Dr. Cole. Is there any research on whether keto can help with a condition called pseudotumor cerebri, uh, which is idiopathic intracranial hypertension? Does cerebral spine fluid decrease when all the other fluids in our bodies decrease uh, as a result of shifting over from being a sugar burner to a fat burner? And if so, then I'm thinking eating keto would be very helpful since it dumps a lot of the excess fluid in the body. Have you experienced anything like this in your patients? Thanks for the info, Jackie. So Jackie wants to know, can eating keto help with a condition called pseudotumor cerebri, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, by reducing cerebral spine fluid? When you shift from sugar burner to fat burner, you drop water. Does it include this kind of fluid that's in the body? So this is something that I do see clinically from time to time over the years. And it is this, again, this intracranial hypertension, this excess CSF, this fluid in the in the brain causing a swelling in the brain. The, one of the, the medications that these people are given is a drug called Diamox, which it actually causes the body. And I think she mentioned this, Jackie mentioned this, but it actually causes the body through the kidneys to shed excess water. Is it diuretic? So, yeah, it's a diuretic. And that is one of the effects of losing, you know, if going keto is losing this excess water weight. So I have seen anecdotally, just clinically, I have seen it be improving people's outcomes, their quality of life, their migraines, their pain, their headaches, these uh, symptoms that have the pressure that they're having on their brain, that improving when they're moving uh, to this way of of a lifestyle. I'm not sure of any specific studies, but I would say just from my clinical experience of being a functional medicine practitioner, I've seen positive outcomes here. It's reasonable to assume here, uh, which is what Jackie assumed, this loss of this extra edema and swelling and, and fluid would be beneficial with someone with this condition. Well, thank you, Jackie, for that question. And we're up to the Apple Podcast Reviews portion of the show. We have two of them here today. Fat Kid Out of Food uh, was the username of the first one. Great job, Jimmy and Dr. Will. I've listened to every episode. I love the show. The addition of Dr. Will Cole has been great. The flow of the podcast between Jimmy and Will is excellent. It inspires me on my health journey and keeps me motivated to continue. It also updates me on all the latest articles and studies about keto, which I don't have time to find or read on my own. Overall, a great podcast. Thank you for that. And the next one, K Martinez 2002, best keto podcast. Jimmy and Dr. Cole, 
the use uh, they use a combination of research and Will's experience and knowledge in functional medicine to discuss keto in a holistic way while objectively discussing articles and research in the media. I'm always excited to listen when a new podcast comes out and always learn so much. I love the dynamic between the two of them. They make me laugh and always keep me entertained. Thank you, Jimmy and Will, for all you do by spreading the word about keto and helping people all over the world get healthy. Well, thank you, guys. That was two amazing uh, reviews. If you'd like to leave us a review, head on over to Apple Podcasts, type in Jimmy Moore, Will Cole, Keto Talk. You will find the show, and you too can leave us your review. Well, guys, that's it for episode 129 of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole. KetoTalk.com is where you can find full show notes for this podcast and really every episode that we do. If you missed any past episodes, go back through our archives. We have those listed there at KetoTalk.com as well. And if you have questions, we get bunches of them every week. You can also submit your questions through KetoTalk.com. And if you want to connect with your fellow Ketonians, that is KetoTalkFB.com for the Facebook page for this podcast. So, Will, we're back next Thursday with one more last final regular format uh, episode of 2018. And so real excited to uh, get to that one. Uh, I'll, I'll work hard this week on finding really good articles for us to talk about as our final swan song of the year. But uh, thanks for being here. And we'll see you guys again next Thursday. You've been listening to Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole. Visit our website, ketotalk.com, for full show notes for this episode. If you love Keto Talk, then drop us a review at iTunes. Thanks for joining us for today's episode, and we'll see you again next Thursday. Disc of Light.